Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by Susan Pendergrass, Jacob Puckett, and David Stokes from the Show Me Institute. Susan, we're recording this on Thursday morning. Yesterday, the session for 2022 got underway. Uh, what do you keep in tabs on in the beginning of the session, coming off of an active uh, education session in 2021? And um, do you think there's going to be more movement in the area of education this year? I, yes, I absolutely do. Um, in the last week, you if you read the news, you know, schools that were open are closing and, and um, districts are rethinking things. The Chicago Teachers Unions have refused to have teachers go to school. Chicago Public Schools refuses to teach virtually. So we're still almost three years later in this big mess when it comes to how to educate children. So I do think the legislature will get uh, active on these issues quickly. Um, what we've seen in the pre-filing and then in the last couple of days in the filing, multiple parent bill of rights bills, uh, one that the, is very much aligned with the Show Me Institute's parents' bill of rights, but multiple bills that want to codify the fact that parents are in charge of their child's education, not the state, and that parents have certain rights when it comes to how their ch children are educated. Um, lots of those. We're also seeing multiple bills on curriculum transparency, um, either forbidding schools from teaching certain things or requiring that schools uh, post their transparent post their curriculum type thing. Uh, I think we'll see more of those. There has been at least one bill filed that we're excited about. Um, on interdistrict choice, which means that a child can pick a school in a different school district. The State Board of Education, just before Christmas, put out their sort of legislative priorities. And that was one of theirs, surprisingly, was this interdistrict choice. And um, what we've seen so far, there had been a bill already pre-filed, but then since they put out their priorities, there's been one bill filed yesterday that basically would create a task force to study that is not something that we're interested in doing we would like to just move forward but we're hoping that um that's not the direction that the legislature takes just in studying it because like right now if you think about it a child who attends school in a district with a mask mandate might want to go to a school in the district next door that doesn't have a mask mandate same true with vaccination mandates, um, some of the quarantining mandates. Uh, not that kids want to move around all the time, but I think some parents are realizing that they happen to have bought a house in a school district that's not really very aligned with how they want their child educated. So we'd like to see the legislature move fast on that. Um, definitely expanding scholarships, the in-place ESA program that passed last year that's just getting kicked off. They have a website, they have a director, and they're getting ready to be able to um, certify scholarship organizations and start taking contributions. Really would like to see that expanded quickly. Multiple other states have used um, education stimulus funds to uh, give parents like immediate scholarships if they need to either be in person or not in person or in a different type of environment. Um, one thing on the stimulus funds is that the last round of stimulus, the American Rescue Plan, DESE is set to receive about one, or the Department of Education, uh, an additional $1.9 billion in um, stimulus funding. However, that requires the state to first do a supplemental budget session and have the governor sign a law that says that they can access those funds. If they don't do that and do it quickly, the money will not come to Missouri. Now, we seem to be, I mean, I think people within public education would probably disagree with me, but uh, the public education system is currently operating and 
it seems like another 1.9 billion would be more of a slush fund than a like keep the doors open kind of thing. The doors are open, but if we or folks want that uh, $2 billion, they're going to have to act relatively quickly on that. So some of the bullet items, if you just took the, you listed them, you know, cases going up, mass mandates, virtual learning, um, it'd be really hard to tell if we were in January 2021 or January 2022. But it does seem like that some of the the sounds that are um, coming from some people like the mayor of Chicago, I know, said, no, we're going to keep school. I think the new mayor of New York said, does it feel like the people that you're talking to in education that maybe even people who were uh, maybe appropriately cautious or over cautious last year are like no we're we're done with this we need to get kids back in schools 100 percent. so here's what we know now that we didn't know then we have test scores from last year and the missouri test scores for students who were taught virtually are a disaster like three quarters of the kids scored below ba- basic just a disaster especially in math so we know that virtual learning by and large if you that was your only choice for the whole year was a failure did not work um and there's lots of reasons for that you know districts had to scramble to create a whole new educational platform and some were ready for that and some just quite frankly were not so we have that information secondly we now have masks and we have vaccines and we have milder variants so it's not like you know april of 2019 where we're like oh my gosh we have no idea how this is going to play out we do know how it plays out we do know that it doesn't live on surfaces like we are so much smarter about this Uh, virus now than we were two and a half years ago. And basically what has happened and what people are really beginning to realize is that we tried to keep everybody, including all the adults safe, kind of at the expense of children. So kids really were in fact harmed by this shutdown that had to happen in the beginning because we didn't know, you know, what this pandemic was going to look like. But now that we know, we cannot continue to sort of take this, have kids bear the brunt of this because they need to be in school, kids have come back to school even in the fall. And this is true in St. Louis, and I'm sure throughout Missouri. And there's been dramatically higher discipline problems. There's been incredible loss of learning. I mean, it, it kids suffered. And we, in fact, know that 100 years ago in the last pandemic, young that young generation, that whole cohort suffered. And in many cases, their entire lives, they were still behind. So clock is ticking. We need to get kids back in school to the extent possible, keep everybody safe. But we now know that there are ways to do that. And this whole like, we can't go to school because it's not safe thing is pretty much been debunked. If, if people knew the discipline problems just among the staff at the Show Me Institute when we came back to work, people <laughs> people would be appalled. I can't even imagine what it's like at schools. Right. I know you're kidding, but it's true that like even adults, those of us who have people who have been stuck at home, who, you know, there's a lot of built up tension right now and kids are going back to school and, you know, they haven't had the consistency. They haven't had the routine of it. And there's more fights. I mean, there's just more there's more tension. And I should mention teachers are quitting in droves. I mean, teachers, you know, this is the great resignation. Teachers are no exception. And unfortunately, not that you ask that, but teachers made this bargain 50 years ago that they'd be better off to be unionized and have collective bargaining than to be uh, judged on their individual merit. And a lot of teachers are finding out that, uh, you know, good teachers are underpaid, poor teachers are overpaid. And now as teachers are leaving, you know, we're, we're going to have a real problem. We don't have enough bus drivers. We don't have enough substitutes. And some districts are having to um, shut down a day or so a week because they don't have enough teachers. And so, you know, hopefully, you know, like, hopefully it will be like a phoenix rising out of the ashes. Hopefully lots of great ideas will come out of this, but one of them will 
possibly be, re hopefully will be rethinking assignment based on address to just one option and rethinking the teaching profession. I think it's time. So Susan, serious question about the interdistrict choice bills that have been introduced and that have been talked about by the State School Board Association. Are they wholesale interdistrict choice or are they mostly, is there got to be a cause such as a mask, if your district has a mask mandate or a vaccine mandate or if your district has the test scores are so low or if something's off, not offered in your district but offered elsewhere. Is, do the bills you've seen so far, do they have to have a cause to allow for it or are they just open-ended interdistrict choice? They're open-ended interdistrict choice. The only caveat, which could be huge, is districts get to decide whether they accept students or not. So, you know, if, uh, let's say Clayton says, yeah, well, we're not going to accept students. Our students can leave, but we won't bring students in. You know, if enough districts do that, that really waters down the uh, impact of a bill like this. But out in the rural areas, it's going to be a really important thing in terms of, oh, and also here's the one, here's the one caveat too. Uh, you can't do it for sports. And they've tried to like build this into the legislation so that if they, Somehow, if you, they know that a child's moving for the football team or the basketball team, then they're redshirted for a year. So they've tried to like tamp down the um, incentive to change school districts for sports because you can imagine that a school district could say, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna get the uh, best baseball team in the state by recruiting from our surrounding districts. We're gonna put together this team." So they're trying to prevent that from happening. Um, it's a sad commentary on public education in the United States, I think, but. Um, but no, and then for transportation costs, the one bill I've seen that I think looks pretty good, uh, they're gonna create a, a fund in the treasurer's office to reimburse parents if necessary. And this transportation piece really is, uh, I think a straw man argument, red herring, straw man, whatever that is, to say that, oh, we'll never work because we can't figure out transportation. Well, my colleague, Mike McShane has been writing about this recently. There's lots of ways around that transportation barrier. You can reimburse parents mileage you can do ride shares you can do you know vans you can do all kinds of different things to get around the transportation piece but there is a funding mechanism in the one bill to compensate either districts or parents if transportation costs are too high so one more thing before we move on do we know what the mechanics are of the two billion dollars the 1.9 billion dollars if the deadline isn't meet to allocate i mean do does the state have the money now and it has to be repaid has it not been sent yet so it's just it doesn't the check doesn't clear but it hasn't been sent so we i think the way it works is we send in our application for american rescue plan funds they approved it they sent us a third and there's two thirds being held and it requires uh, the governor to um give the authority to spend the remaining two thirds before they can. And I, if I butcher that, please, anyone listening, let me know what, how I got that wrong. But that's how I understand it is that it has not been sent yet. Um, again, I don't know that we've clearly determined the need, but it has not been sent. All right. Well, that might be a good thing because moving on to our next topic, um, we might already owe the feds some money. And so I didn't want to add on to that ledger. So Jacob, um, another, uh, negotiation that's on a ticking clock the loop trolley um the feds want their money back so fill us in yeah un uncle sam wants his money back uh the, the federal transit administration is saying that unless uh unless trolley officials have a plan to restart service uh the plan has to be submitted to them by february 1st service has to restart june 1st 
unless they have a plan, uh, the feds will want $37 million back uh, that was used to help get the trolley up and very briefly running. And they would want three cars running four days a week. So basically, like, the service was operating uh, before it closed. I don't remember. End of 2020? No. It, it's closed end, a few times. End of times. 2019. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah, it was, it was right before COVID. Um, and, and that's what they want. Now, a couple things we don't know. Um, we don't know if they only want the money from the Loop Trolley Transportation Development District. Because that's that's the the governmental organization that gets that gives money to the trolley from their sales tax in the loop, or do they want it from St. Louis City? Do they want it from University City? Do they want it from any other local government around the trolley? Because the the the, the, L, the loop trolley TDD brings in less than a million dollars a year. It would take decades to pay back thirty seven million dollars bringing in $750,000, $800,000 a year in sales taxes. So if they can't do it, is is that just it? Is is the the rope cut? Or are there other organizations uh, on the hook for this as well? And it's safe to assume that that $37 million is gone, right? It has been spent. It's not, we don't have some that's sitting in a, a bank account somewhere. We have uh, we have bought the tracks. We've bought the shiny cars. They're, they're gone. The money's gone, Zach. I hate to tell you, but the money is gone. And uh, another thing we don't know um, about this, and and this would impact what the best plan forward is, how many years would the trolley have to operate to meet the FTA's guidelines um, versus... Let me rephrase. We don't know how long the trolley would have to be back and running to meet the FTA's guidelines. The numbers I've seen are between 12 years and 40 years, but with an operating budget of a little over a million dollars per year, that's just too big of a range to know for certain, is it going to cost less to pay back the $37 million now, or is it going to cost less to run the trolley for 12 years, 15 years? Because that's what the local officials should be focusing on for the path forward. At this point, whichever is going to cost taxpayers less. And you said they uh, they want three cars running, for, but there's no ridership or utility quotas of any. It's just the the thing needs to be moving. The thing needs to be moving. Three things need to be moving four days a week. It doesn't matter if they're if all three are empty the entire time. That well, all, all three were empty for most of the 13 months they were running before. But that's that's what they want. There are going to be mountain hermits who apply for a job as a driver on the trolley <laughs> so they can just have total solitude and quiet for eight hours a day as they do their shift driving the driving the lonely the lonely trolley it'll be a it'll be a book like a it'll be the the sequel to the lonesome dove series the lonely trolley driver i see a i see a children's book or a western series coming out coming out of this in the future the little trolley yeah, but- that could. Jacob, didn't we put out some ideas for what they could do? Couldn't they do like uh, birthday parties or could they do um, a haunted trolley? Could they do a bar on the trolley? What could they do? We have, I think the show me is to put out a list of ideas. Yeah, we, we had some ideas and, and this ties into the fact that the trolley is mainly a tourism thing. It's not a people mover. So there are all right. sorts of fun things that you could do on the trolley. Uh, yeah. I think someone threw out the idea for a comedian at one point. You could do birthday parties, Halloween stuff, all sorts of themed things. Um, 
just to try to get interest back up in the trolley, rebuild its reputation. Um, but to, to my knowledge, those haven't happened. The world's most he, the world's <laughs> most boring bachelorette parties. Just just, just fifteen well, about, fifteen uh, women screaming screaming woo while moving along at four miles an hour. I mean, it's, school it's a, field trips. You know, we could the history of the Delmar Loop. I mean, there. I just don't think that the folks have really thought about it that hard. All right, so Jacob and David, though you guys have written about this, talked about this for years now. If uh, St. Louis the the trolley came to you guys and they said hey we've got this deadline we've got to meet what are our realistic options do we just pay it back we st louis just got this uh big check from the nfl do we just take that give it back to the feds do we try to meet the guidelines run a zombie trolley what what do you guys think presuming that the only two options are are operated for 15 to 20 years or pay back the money and that the money truly is going to be required to be paid back, which I don't object to. I don't think people should just be able to take federal money, waste waste it, and then not be held to account for it, even if, as David Nicholas writes in his column today, that's a classic example of sunk cost fallacy. Even That's absolutely true. But so if those are the only two options, I would say take take the NFL settlement money and send the send the feds their money back and and uh I'm, if i'm on video i'm wiping my hands of it <laughs> jacob what once you know how long you would have to operate the trolley to satisfy the fta's uh demands guidelines ultimatum do some nostalgia free math figure out which is going to cost the least amount for taxpayers and if, if it's not even close in favor of operating the trolley, maybe that really is the best option. But uh, if if it's even, or, or if it would cost more to operate the trolley, then just pay the money back. All right. Before we move on, just a quick. I will, and I want to make a promise. If if the trolley opens up, then one. If the trolley opens up again, then one day I will I will take the trolley to work. That's what I was going to ask. So <laughs> we have we have a, a quick focus group here. David, you live in the area. Susan, you used to live in the area. Let's say they take all. They have birthday parties and the four mile an hour bachelorette parties. Um, once it's back up, and anyone, Susan, when you're back in town, are you going to see open mic comedians on the trolley? I mean, I wanted to ride it. Want I lived within walking distance of it. I wanted to ride it at least once before it went away. But you know, you had to be. On top of things, it didn't operate for very long. Well, and isn't that part of the problem? I mean, it's kind of like a mattress store. Like once you have a customer, like it could be years before people come back. Like no, they've they've ridden yeah. the trolley once with the kids, and the the frequency of repeat customers is going to be pretty few I, and I, far between. If it opens again, I will film this. I will walk to the loop, jump on the trolley, take the trolley to the history museum, hope that there's a scooter available at the history museum to then rent and then ride to. The office, because if there's no scooter there, then I'm I'm going to be calling somebody at the office to come pick me up, or or maybe I'll ride my bike to the trolley. But I'll do that. I'll do it once, and we'll uh, film it. And I promise for anybody riding the trolley with me, whatever day that may that may be, I will do an open I will do an open mic improvised comedy routine for them while on the trolley. <laughs> okay, so I did see one time I saw a trolley hit a car, hit a parked car. I saw a trolley come up to a parked car and have to stop. And uh, they stopped for, I don't know, long enough that everybody on the trolley just got off. It was like half an hour. They have they had no way of resolving this issue of cars being parked in front of the trolley. And the Del Mar Loop, you know, people lots of times do what they want to up there. So 
it to me just seemed like an opportunity to be stuck on a trolley instead of riding a trolley. Yeah, that's that's all it takes is an SUV to park just slightly further from the curb than it's supposed to, and all of a sudden mm-hmm. you can uh, shut the whole trolley down. That is a thing that that is a thing that will continue. Jacob, are you willing to commit on the podcast to riding the trolley if it reopens? I live nowhere near the loop. Well, it's going to be a little bit of a, it's going to be, you make it a little day trip. Yeah, I could try it once. All right. He's non-committal. So don't count. <laughs> I don't know how much tickets would be, but don't count on uh, getting $2. I think. Don't count on getting $2 <laughs> from Jacob Puckett. Um, all right, David, uh, Columbia, there's discussion of expanding broadband, thumbs up, thumbs down. What's the deal? Well, thumbs up to expanding broadband across, across the country. Thumbs down to to government mandates and government funds to do it, especially the mandates. You know, some of some of the funding for truly unserved distant rural areas may be may be justified and necessary. So Columbia's got a a program now. They're, they've got this this committee investigating broadband needs in in Columbia and ways to take the enormous amount of federal funds from the infrastructure bill that are being you know shoveled to states and local government for many, many unnecessary things, including broadband. And Columbia is trying to decide how to best spend that. And the, the fact is, though, that Columbia and Boone County are well served by broadband. So you really, you don't really have parts of that town that don't have quality internet access. You have some parts of the town that maybe would like higher speeds than they currently have, but the private sector is going to, over time, address that, and probably sooner. So which, what they're doing in Columbia is probably going to be repeated statewide in many many cities and counties and at, at the state level there was during the recent legislative break there was an interim committee studying broadband issues for Missouri particularly rural Missouri and they'll be issuing a report shortly and that and then there'll be a one of the major bills this year will be a bill to authorize some type of broadband committee moving moving forward and I think what we really what is just Vitally important here is that this tens of millions, I think hundreds of millions of dollars in federal broadband funds should be targeted only to where it's truly needed and not just to give it to a city because they want they the private sector there offers a certain level of speed and they want it a few a little bit. If I tried to use the technical terms, I'm sure I'd mess it up. So don't just spend vast sums of money to get slightly increased speeds on the government on the taxpayer dime and to give government and to give government entities now getting them into the broadband game that's what you want to avoid focus this money on partnering with the private sector in truly unserved rural areas distant rural areas that have either no internet access or barely any internet access and if you can focus these efforts there i think some of that money could be could be well spent but we don't need to be spending it in st louis we don't need to be spending it in kansas city for, or columbia or, or springfield and what you really want to avoid even in rural areas small towns that might genuinely have a need for it you want to avoid setting up government government broadband companies you that's the last thing we want is government the same way the government got into the the gym game by creating all these Taj Mahal recreation centers for people to work out in your suburban suburban behemoth workout facility that now is driving out of business to private gyms that that used to be there. Uh, we've seen that throughout Missouri. You don't want 
more examples like that. And I think that's just uh, vitally important. In Spring, for example, in Springfield, they the city utilities there offers some internet service in competition with with the private sector. And while that may be what they're doing in Springfield now, I really don't want to see that repeated anywhere anywhere else in the state. So, what's the timeline on this? When how uh, how long before decisions are made? Checks are written. Hopefully it takes a long, long time because in the meantime, I'm confident that the private sector would step up and address most of these needs themselves and the need, the need would, would go away. Until you're, unless you're always going to argue that everybody deserves the highest level of speed, and the maximum service, so then you're always trying to get government money to increase that speed everywhere, which I think is a poor argument, a poor use of taxpayer funds, and getting the government involved in some place it doesn't need to be. So hopefully it takes a long time uh, because I don't want to move in quickly. And the last thing I want to see is every small county in the state in creating their own, you know, Reynolds, Reynolds County Internet Company owned by, owned by the county and trying to sell Internet service to the rest of the people. That's happened in other states in, in America. I believe it was Kentucky that tried a statewide one. And it was just financially it's been a it's been a disaster for, for Kentucky. And that's likely what you would see here. Yeah, yeah, David, I completely agree with that. Uh, I live in a very rural area and uh, love him or hate him. Elon Musk is coming at this problem hard with something called Starlink, and it's directed specifically at rural areas. And um, I have the fastest Internet of my life in a very rural area through something called Firefly, which is faster than 5G. So I think that um, the private sector is already seeing the huge opportunity in rural areas to bring high speed Internet. And I think by the time the government solved any of this problem, it would be uh, too late. All right. Wrapping up. Jacob, what do you keep an eye on as the session begins? In addition to uh, a bill to allow retail electric competition, I'm also looking at SB 969, which uh, short, short form essentially would make it easier to construct nuclear power plants here in Missouri and that's this this is something to keep an eye on because the Rush Island coal plant will be closing in the very near future. So what are they going to replace it with? How soon are they going to start moving on it? Uh, this bill could uh, help them come up with an answer. Susan. Uh, looking at the which of the parents bill of rights bills move and what happens with the curriculum transparency bills. And David. Lots of bills interested in, but for the purpose of talking right now, focused on two. One, a bill by Senator Andrew Koenig that would remove the ability to impose community improvement district and transportation development district sales taxes on groceries. I think that would be a wonderful change so that you can no longer add those extra, often awful sales taxes onto onto groceries. So a lot of good would, would come from that. So very supportive of that. Also a bill by... Representative Schmidt Dogan to further clarify, which is unfortunate because I think the law is pretty clear as it is, but already in the city of St. Louis has determined that they can continue to collect the earnings tax from people who work remotely where their offices are in the city and they live in the county or St. Charles or wherever. That's not how the law was written. It's not how it was intended for. I think it's awful that they've the city has continued to collect those taxes as such. So Schmed Dogan has a bill to further clarify that you cannot collect the earnings tax on remote workers, and I very much hope that that, that gets a great hearing and, and passes. All right. As always, plenty more at showmeinstitute.org. Jacob, David, Susan, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.